It's an end of an era, isn't it? With the passing of Billy Graham. I was thinking this morning that maybe, sometimes, we as Christians rely on other people to speak the gospel. It's easier to invite somebody to something where somebody else is talking about Jesus than actually say it ourselves. So, despite the tragic loss uh, to, to America, to the world, of Billy Graham passing, maybe it's an opportunity for us to speak a little more. Or just the thought of that. You know, there's so many famous Christian preachers. Maybe we can see it as an opportunity for us to use our voices. But certainly, he was God's gift to all of us. And in one way or another, his life has impacted us, no doubt about it. I just want to very briefly share something with you. I've been waiting to share it with you as, as a whole, something ex- extremely exciting. There's this movement happening right now in the Mohawk Valley that, you know, I'm new here, so as I understand it, that is perhaps unprecedented or it hasn't been seen like this in decades. Churches are coming together from different denominations, different nationalities, different languages. We're, we're getting together and coming as one body to worship Christ, to pray over the Mohawk Valley. And it's amazing. It's remarkable. Church after church, pastor after pastor is interested in, in joining this effort. And right now, the pastors who are involved, we're looking at holding event, an event as one body with all of our churches. Right now, we're looking at June 16th. Um, so it's not an evangelistic movement. This is a movement as one body with our varying denominations to come together and worship God and pray over the Mohawk Valley. So it's really exciting. And, and this being the first step, this just the beginning. So I'm letting you know so you can pray and so you can prepare yourselves for this unity, this move of God that's happening. Anyway, I'm really excited about it. It's hard for me to contain it. Uh, Very cool things. All right, so Book of Mark. Been in the Book of Mark since August, and we have finally come to what we could consider the second half of the Book of Mark. You know, from the very beginning, Jesus' message has been simple. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he authenticates that message with his miracles, with his healing, by overcoming satanic strongholds, making what was unclean clean. He even goes so far as to forgive sins. So he's authenticating his message. The kingdom of God has indeed come in one man, in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But this whole time he's been keeping his identity veiled. He's been keeping it quiet and silent. Person after person who sees it or recognizes it is able to peek through the cracks. He says, don't tell anyone. He's even allowing these misconceptions about him to go unchecked. But there is this shift now. There's this shift in the book of Mark. Things are changing because there has been this miraculous event that has occurred. Faith has appeared in the disciples. It's sprung out by the hand of God. With Peter's confession of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as Jesus as the Christ, everything changes. And so for the sake of their faith, Jesus begins to remove the veil so that they would see clearly, so that they would truly know who he is. And so as he does this, we enter into the second half of the book of Mark. We begin it today. And what we find as he's removing the veil is what no one expected. And it's what I want you to see today. There's something about the gospel that looks a lot more like dying than living. The gospel following Jesus is not about being healthy. It's not about living a comfortable life. It's not about a risk-free, quiet life. It's about following Jesus to the cross and dying with him. 
Because there's something that's beyond the cross. Something that is unfathomably beautiful and satisfying. So in dying to ourselves, in dying, we understand what it means to truly live. I want you to see that today. Let's read our passage. Mark 8, verses 31. And I know it says to 9-1, but honestly, I've just omitted 9-1 because there's so much (laughs) preceding that. So I'm just going to read to the end of chapter 8. And he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Let's pray. You spoke these words to Peter so Peter would see. Well, he would see more clearly. Father, speak these words to us this morning that we might see more clearly. That we might know what you're calling us to as disciples. What your offer is. We might know who you are. And love it and cherish it and see the value and the beauty of Christ crucified, risen for our sake. I pray that you would keep us far from legalism this morning. Keep us in grace, in the freedom and beauty of grace. Help me, Father, in my weaknesses to speak these words truly as you would have me. It's in Christ's name I pray and trust. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous Christian who was killed by the Nazis, he said, when Jesus bids you come, he bids you come and die. This is not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's a gospel that looks a lot more like dying. So immediately following Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, Jesus is beginning to teach them what that actually means. He's looking to redefine what Messiah means to them. And it's to such a degree that the disciples are are basically no longer going to recognize what Messiah is, at least according to the conceptions of the day. But a little bit more about Peter's confession. I said when he... He proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. When he confessed Jesus as the Messiah, he was seeing truly. He was seeing through faith. But this is a faith of a a small faith. He wasn't seeing clearly. He wasn't getting the whole picture. What he understood the Messiah to be was not what Jesus was. Because Peter understood the Messiah in terms of the Jews of that day, the common perceptions. There was this fervor among them that the Messiah would come, and he was coming soon. And when he came, he would overthrow Rome and cast off the, the oppressive Roman government. That he would be the salvation of Israel. Yeah, Jesus was the salvation of Israel. But he did not come to restore the glory to Israel to bring it back to its geopolitical stance that it once had, the seat of God on earth. He came to bring victory, but he did not come to bring victory through defeating Rome. So what Jesus begins to tell them about the Messiah to Peter and the disciples, it is, it is almost unthinkable to them. 
Look at verse 31 again. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So notice when, when he says this, when he begins to describe what the Messiah is, he switches his words. He doesn't say the Messiah must die. He says the Son of Man must die. So why this switch in terminology? In the book of Mark, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of God, is the most profound understanding that Mark is trying to portray about Jesus. He's, he is God. This man is God, truly divine. But Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself that he uses. Now, a lot of people have this belief that Son of God is highlighting Jesus' divinity. Son of Man is highlighting his humanity. And although there's an element of truth in that, that's really not what's happening. There's something far more profound and subtle in this. So first of all, Son of Man is a completely unremarkable title. As we see him say it, as we see him use this title, nobody is impacted by it. Nobody cries heresy when he says Son of Man. Because in the Old Testament, Son of Man is used for all kinds of people. Judges, kings, prophets, other random people really. So it's not remarkable. Using the Son of Man as his title is a way to keep himself veiled. But if anyone would approach him in faith, there's this wide open door that would take them directly to the heart of the identity of Christ. Listen to this prophecy found in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall never be destroyed. That is the Messiah. That is the prophecy. From this prophecy in Daniel, we see that Jesus is letting it out. For anyone who would come in faith, it's right there to see. However small, Son of Man is the Messiah. Now here's just a tiny parenthesis. When Jesus is using Son of Man, we get a hint at something because every single place in the Old Testament that Son of Man is used in relationship to prophecy, it's a term of coming judgment. So we're going to see that idea expound and grow as we continue through the book of Mark. All right, so that's just a little breadcrumb on this trail I've been taking you on. Close parentheses. There's a feast at the end of it. So Jesus is claiming this messianic title, but it's subtle. It's subtle. Because Jesus does not want to be the Messiah who's militaristic. He didn't come with weapons to overthrow. So he doesn't want that idea of who he is as the Messiah to be pervasively spread. And it seems that the disciples are beginning to understand some of this. They're beginning to understand his claim as Messiah. But, like I've been saying, it's not the victorious Messiah. He would suffer. He would be killed. That's the opposite of military power and conquest and victory and rule, right? It sounds like a lot more like the suffering servant from Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. This is the suffering servant. The Jews called this the suffering servant, but they never associated the suffering servant with the Messiah. These were two different figures in their mind. The idea that the Messiah would suffer and die, that's never been heard in anywhere, anywhere in Israel throughout all time that Israel's existed. Nobody believes that. It's a completely new concept. How can the Messiah bring 
How can he die and bring victory at the same time? And Jesus is bringing the suffering servant and the Messiah together. He's linking them. He's saying the Messiah will be victorious through death and resurrection. Three days he will rise again. And the minds of the disciples at this point are exploding. It's also incredibly hard to grasp because of who he says will kill him. Elders, chief priests, scribes. These are Judaism. They hold Judaism together. They're the center of religion. Isn't this amazing? It is not the worst of humanity that would kill Jesus. Not the overt sinners or the mongrels that would crucify him. Jesus is saying that the most religious, most righteous, most law-abiding people on the face of the planet are the ones that will hang him on a cross, that will kill him. It's not the worst of humanity. This is the best that humanity has to offer. They live to the highest standards of morality and religion, and they slaughter the Messiah. Mark 4.11, in Mark 4.11, which we saw a number of weeks ago, Jesus said this to the disciples, To you have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. This is the key that opens the secret, that opens this door. Jesus, the suffering Messiah. He cannot be understood without this understanding. Victory comes through suffering and through death. It's too much for Peter. It's too much for Peter. Verse 32. Jesus said all this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He believes that now. But he cannot handle Jesus talking like this. The Messiah is here to rid them of this pestilence known as Rome, to restore the nation of Israel. He cannot die. That's not what Peter expects or wants. So he takes the Messiah aside and begins to tell him that he has it all wrong. Verse 33. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter's rebuking him mid-rebuke, I assume, Jesus sees the disciples, presumably, presumably all looking at him, watching this take place. And when he sees the disciples looking, he rebukes Peter. But Jesus is not trying to save face here. This is not a reputation move for him. When Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah, the implication of the text is that Peter is speaking on behalf of the disciples. So in his rebuke, he's expressing the opinion of the disciples as a whole. So Jesus wanted to see, the, he wanted the disciples to be watching. He, his rebuke to Peter was a rebuke to all of them. Get behind me, Satan. That is the exact same phrase that Jesus uses to Satan after his 40 days in the wilderness, resisting the temptation. Yet we read it differently. It says, be gone, Satan. But in the Greek, it's the same phrase. Hupage Satana. Get behind me, Satan. There is no rebuke that is stronger than this, not even to the Pharisees. And that should signify to us the absolute gravity and magnitude of Peter's error here. Yes, Peter's accepted in faith Jesus as Messiah, but Peter's misunderstanding is deadly, it's dangerous, and it needs to be killed. So very sharply, Jesus rebukes him because Peter's setting his mind on the things of man, a free country, a victorious people, global religious authority back in Jerusalem, a glorious nation and a glorious people with this nationalistic mindset. That was Peter's expectation. That was the expectation of the Jews. But this is what's happening. If that's what the will of Peter is, Peter is imposing 
His will on the will of God. He's opposing His will on the desires of Christ, the Messiah. And to assert your will over the will of God is not to be a disciple of Jesus. It's to be a disciple of Satan. Get behind me, Satan. For Peter, the thought that the Son of Man must suffer and die is inconceivable. For Jesus, that is an inevitability. So central is this theme of suffering to Jesus that he now calls the crowd to himself. What Jesus says is now saying to the twelve, he has to say to everybody, to the crowd there and to us today. Look at verse 34. Calling the crowd to him, With his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So now there's this shift. Cross is not just for the Messiah. Death is not just for the Messiah. It is for all of his followers. Now when I say that, it probably doesn't have the same weight and bleakness that it did when Jesus said it. Because the cross is nice and peaceful. Look how pretty. We make it out of gold. We wear it around our necks. We put it on bumper stickers. We see it everywhere. It's just another symbol. It's gold right over there. That's not what the disciples pictured when Jesus said this. They didn't even know at this point that Jesus was dying on a cross. What they immediately pictured is this horrific, shameful execution that the Romans imposed on rebels, on the seditious. They would see a naked, mangled body hanging on a blood-soaked cross, that person pathetically gasping for air, racked in agony, unable to control his bodily functions, elevated up on that tree so that everybody passing by would see the consequence of rebellion and mock you for it. And then that body, left still nailed, would hang on the cross long after they died, exposed to the elements, rotting and stinking. The cross was a horrific instrument of death and shame, of dehumanization. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up that cross. Every single person who was crucified by the Romans, every single one, was required to carry the horizontal member of the cross to the place where they would be crucified. That was part of their execution. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, here's your horizontal member. Take it and die. But certainly Jesus is talking metaphorically, right? Because we don't have cross members, nobody's going to crucify us literally for being a Christian. And we, don't, we shouldn't go around looking for ways to suffer and hurt ourselves. In Colossians 2.23, that's, Paul says that's of no value to us. Asceticism is of no value to us. So what is Jesus talking about? There's this link between denying yourself and the cross. Denying yourself is like dying on a cross. How? Well, we have a heart. We have a will that is in utter rebellion against God. It's a seditious heart. We hate the things of God. We want to do what we want to do. And he's our creator. But forget him. We want to do what we want to do. To put it more starkly, we value our will over his will. Like Peter did when he rebuked Jesus. Because ultimately, every one of us, we want to be significant. We want to be comfortable. We want honor for ourselves. We want to be loved by many. 
We want adventure. We want purpose. You know, all these things are great things, honestly. But we, when we begin to seek those things outside of God, it's senseless. It's rebellion. It's sedition. Because God is the one who possesses the means to satisfy you in every single one of those areas. He will give you significance. He will give you honor. He will love you beyond measure. And we reject him. It is senseless rebellion. Listen to how senseless this rebellion is. From Jeremiah 2.13. Listen to these words. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, cisterns that can hold no water. God is this fountain of life gushing out of the ground. All you have to do is go to him and drink. John 7, Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. What is more difficult than coming and drinking? Nothing. I mean, it's so easy to do that, right? It's so easy to come and drink from this water that's free and abundant. And we say no. And we toil and we dig in the dirt to build ourselves cisterns, to to hold water that would satisfy. But no cistern we construct can hold any water. And we become slaves to the digging. So that will that is so bent on digging, so bent on trying to find satisfaction from places other than Christ, crucify that will. Kill it. It is rebellious and foolish. It is the will of sedition. Kill it. What does it mean to kill your own will? First, it means that you trust Jesus is going to satisfy you unlike anything in this world. Unlike you can satisfy yourself. He can satisfy you. It means when you want to boast about your accomplishments and successes so that people might see you as significant, instead, you find a way to boast in Christ and his accomplishments. You could preach about the latest cool thing that you have done or the lifestyle that you live. All of that is just grasping at significance and satisfaction in yourself, in the world. Broken cisterns. Following Jesus is dying to those things. Well, While people are left preaching about the things of the world, we preach Christ and Him crucified. They talk talk about accomplishments. We talk about the accomplishments of Christ. They put their trust in the system of government. We put our trust in Christ and His kingdom that will never end. In the gospel is where our significance and meaning comes from and to the world that looks like foolishness, that looks like dying. To those who believe, that's what it means to truly live. I want to get nitty-gritty, though. I want to get nitty-gritty and super practical. What does this look like day-to-day, day-to-day? You might desire, at the end of the day, you're tired after a long day of working or or whatever. You're tired, and so you kind of, at the end of the day, you just want to zone out and watch something or, or do nothing. And so you get on your knees and you say, God, I'm tired and I'm weak, but help me to have the energy and the desire to be with you. And you crucify that desire to find rest outside of Christ. You spend some time with God in the Word and in prayer. You have the desire to go to some exotic place, spend a week doing nothing, pampering yourself, enjoying. And so you say, God, help me. I know that this world you have given to us to enjoy, but the fulfillment of that is coming 
Help me to trust in that. And so you crucify that desire to pamper yourself and you find a way to serve other people. You find a way to be intentionally relational with other people. You desire not to be disliked. So you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to talk about Jesus, so you stay quiet. So you pray, God, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to speak and to offend and to not be liked. Help me, give me boldness. And you crucify that desire. And you open your mouth and share the gospel. Somebody is annoying and abrasive. And, it, and you just don't want to be around them. So you look for ways to avoid them. And so you pray, God, I was so offensive to you and abrasive to you. And you've come into my life and accepted me and you love me. Help me to have this same kind of love for this, people who, this person who is offensive to me. And you crucify that desire And you find a way to invite them into your home to be their friend and to love them, to serve them. You find a way to honor them in front of other people. You desire to be popular. You desire that people would like you, to be honored. And so you begin to do things that would get for yourself that attention. And so you pray, God, help me to trust that you have elevated me with Christ to the place of highest honor that exists. As Ephesians 2.6 says, help me to trust that my significance comes from you and not from the world. And you crucify that desire and find a way to honor Christ instead of yourself, to talk about Christ's accomplishments instead of your own, so that Christ would be honored, so that you might diminish and he might increase. And these are just a few examples, by no means is this exhaustive, a few examples of how we can crucify our will as Christ is calling us into, how to deny ourselves. Why? Because Jesus did this. He did this for us. He denied himself for us. We don't do these things because it's a requirement or a law. We do it because our Savior did this for us. How we love him for it. How we want to be like him. How we want to be changed into a new creation and he's changing us. And so we take these efforts to crucify our flesh, not because it's a law, but because we love our Savior. And let Jesus get the glory. Jesus gets the glory. And he gives to us joy and peace and satisfaction and life. Okay, and then Jesus gives these four statements to the crowd that he's speaking to. The first is in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We all want to live. We don't want to die. That is ingrained in us. And Jesus is telling you how to save your life right here. Life. The Greek word suke can be translated to mean your soul, your being, your will, your heart. Your person. This is the seat of your desires. This is who you are. You will lose yourself if you try to save yourself. And in Christ, by denying yourself, you find yourself. You'll save yourself. Okay. He is saying if you want the desires of your heart, if he's saying if you want your soul, who you are as a person. If you want to live, you must not try to sustain yourself. Or in other words, you must tr- not, try not to satisfy those desires yourself. Stop digging cisterns. 
Do not try to save yourself or, or seek soul satisfaction from the world because they cannot give it to you. Lose that life. Let it go. Leave your cisterns and drop your shovels. Repent and believe in the gospel. So that means that you let go of your ambitions for yourself and you take up Christ's ambitions for the gospel. And in doing this, you will live. You will truly live. And you will live freely in the joy and satisfaction of Christ. So following Jesus is not a both and. Right? You cannot seek the things of the world and Christ at the same time. Being a disciple, and this is what he's doing right here, being a disciple of Jesus is an either or. You are either a disciple of Jesus or you are not. There is no both. Matthew six twenty four, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And the example that he gives is you cannot serve God and money. It's an either-or. The second statement about discipleship he gives in verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So what does it matter if everything in this world is yours and you can't even live to enjoy it? How many modern examples of this are there? I can think of a couple. When I was in construction, I worked at this person's house, renovating his bathroom, he and his wife's bathroom. And the husband would be on the couch sleeping when we got there. He'd be on the couch sleeping all day and when we left. But I guess at some point when he left the couch, he played the lottery and he won like $150,000. The first thing this guy did was divorce his wife. Then he bought himself a car. He went on a, in a very extravagant vacation and they bought a bunch of other things and he was broke and then they had to sell their house. Another guy, when I was an employed somewhere, um, he won like the Powerball lottery and he got tens of millions of dollars out of that one. So he built for himself this mansion in a gated community, very expensive gated community. And so he and his family moved in there and it wasn't long before his wife and kids left. And he had this big house, and he was spending lots of money. He couldn't afford it anymore, so he had us come back and build him a smaller house, which was still huge by any of our standards. So that house was completed, and it was two or three months after that, they found him hanging in the stairwell. What good is it if you gain the whole world and you lose your own soul? There are a lot of people who are breathing, but they're not living. And that deadness is going to increase and increase and increase on into eternity. Unless you come and repent and believe in the gospel. But there's an implication here, a beautiful, beautiful implication if giving up your life for Christ and the gospel, in giving up your life for Christ and the gospel, you get everything. You get everything. You get the world and everything in it. Romans eight thirty two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, he'll, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? That's not some things. All things. Everything in heaven and on earth is given to us who trust in Christ. Now, these things are not given to us to possess, but they're given to us to enjoy eternally as gifts for your pleasure forever. And then listen to some of these promises. Some of these promises are amazing. You're given the earth and everything in it. Matthew 5, 5. A new body to enjoy that earth that will never get sick or tired or suffer or die. Romans 8, 23. You will get the position of highest honor with Christ in heaven. Ephesians 1, 20. And you will get communion with God that is so intimate it is like Jesus' communion with the Father. John seventeen twenty three. You're invited. This is astounding. 
into the community of the Trinity. In all of this, you are given and will eternally experience infinitely increasing joy in the glory of God's grace. Every moment of joy surpassed by the next moment of joy. Infinitely. So is there anything left out that God has not given you? In Christ? Whoever trusts in Christ, this is for you. What does it profit any person to gain the whole world if the world and the body are temporary? What is better than the eternal promises of God? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all promises that God has ever made to his people are yours in Christ Jesus, are yes in Christ Jesus. All right, the third statement about discipleship in verse 37. For who or for what can a man give in return for his own soul? Is there anything that you God as payment for your soul? Our sinful acts, they've accrued this debt, this immeasurable debt. And no matter what you dump into that, can never fill it up. Who can repay it? We can certainly not repay God with our broken cistern business. You can provide no hope, no hope for your own soul. But listen to what Jesus says in a couple more chapters from here in Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you hear that? In Christ, your payment has been made. Being a disciple means your way is paid. This unfathomably large debt that makes our national deficit look like pennies is paid. Completely covered. And the final statement, the fourth statement in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. So one proof that a person has not and does not continue to crucify their desires, their will, their flesh, is that they stay silent about Jesus. If you value your reputation more than you love Jesus and the gospel, you will stay silent. Your silence is your evidence for your love of self. And look, this is an adulterous and sinful generation where the people in greatest standing in society would murder the Son of God. Why does their opinion about you matter at all? Why is that more important than Christ's desire and his desire to satisfy you through your speaking? Silence also shows that you do not care about your neighbors, the people you love, the people around you. If you know the source of this living water, why would you let them die of thirst in the bottom of their broken cistern? Tell them there's water. Tell them there's plenty of water, abundant water, free water. All they need to do is come to the water and drink. Tell them. If you value Christ, if you love what he has done through the cross, you will be absolutely compelled to speak about this. It will be as easy as drinking water. Not because you have to, but because it is great news. If you have the cure for some terrible illness and this person is dying of it, would you hold it in your pockets and not give it to them? It's crazy. Give it to them. The path of life is through Christ and Christ alone. 
Would you not share that with people? That they might have life too? If shame drives you to silence, it proves that you have never valued Christ. And so when it is time for your life to be weighed, he too will be ashamed of you. That you would reject and be ashamed of the only possible thing or one that could bring you joy and everlasting life. But do not say to yourself, I must speak so that Jesus is not ashamed of me. That's law. Cry out to God that he would show you the infinite value and worth of our Savior. That you would fall in love with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Because in loving him, you will not be able to restrain yourself from speaking about him. This is not a law. It's because you love him. Remember what Paul says in Romans 10. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? As it is written, how beautiful the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. This isn't just for preachers. We all should speak so that in these people, faith can come by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. It is given to you to speak. How beautiful your feet, how how beautiful you are when you speak the gospel to God. He looks at you and he sees beauty as you speak Christ. Jesus the Messiah suffered, and he died this this horrific death so that we could live. And his death becomes our death. His cross becomes our cross. And as a result, his resurrected life becomes our resurrected life. We crucify ourselves by submitting our wills and our desires to him. And then he takes every one of those crucified desires and he satisfies them more than we could ask or imagine, on into eternity. This looks like dying. This life looks like dying because we are denying ourselves and our natural tendencies and how we seek our own advancement, our own reputation, our own honor, our own success. We seek the advancement of the gospel and the honor of Christ. And this is our daily denial, to live to him. So, inner debate. We choose this path. We choose this path of death. We choose to to make our lives be more about dying in the everyday. Because we have this incredible promise that's in front of us of life eternal, fully satisfied in Christ. There isn't anything that this world can give you and that you can find for yourself that would outweigh that. But we need to trust that we need to ask God that he would show us these realities. Because the, other, the paradoxical thing here is that you can't show yourself this. You can't bring yourself to faith. You can't bring yourself to die to yourself. We need Christ to be working in us. So we cry out to God, show me that you are this living water. Awaken me to faith. Show me your value that I might die to myself. Because only with valuing Christ for who he is will we desire to kill our desires. 
This is paradoxical and this is hard. And so many have, people have taken this into legalism and formed a set of laws and rules for your life that you need to abide by these things in order to gain life. And that's just another work. We need Christ to be working in us and doing these things through us and for us. So we cry out to him and we trust in his promises. Like, I was reading this this morning. I'm totally off script here, if you will, but I am, I, I am feeling weak when presenting things like this because the, magnitude, the, the, the power of these words is so beyond me that I know, if left to me, it's debauched. <laughs> so I was praying this this morning. But he said to me, Paul is writing, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then he is strong. And is that not Christ or us crucifying ourselves? Is that not Paul crucifying himself? In our weakness, he is strong. And so I'm trusting that he's doing that. Let us all trust in his work and his accomplishments as we lay ourselves down on that bloody, horrific cross. And let us go on proclaiming this good news about our Messiah who through suffering and dying brought an everlasting victory to every one of us who believe. Let's pray. You, you call us to what's impossible, Father. Who would want to go and face this torment of self-denial? But I pray that as we wrestle with that and struggle with it, you would open our eyes to the infinite worth of your Son. That we would see him and see that in him our soul will be satisfied. And that that living for that, living for you, for Christ and the gospel, is more valuable than anything we could find on this earth. There is nothing that compares to that beauty, to that joy. Help us all to see it and know it in our hearts and not walk out of this room saying that was a nice sermon, but to let it affect our hearts and change our lives that we might die to ourselves and live for you, that in our weakness you might be strong. Make this our reality and rip them out of our platitudes. Do this miracle because I can't. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.